You are listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, a podcast where we talk about ways to build wealth and create more freedom in your life today. I am your host, Aquania Escarnet. Hey guys, welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. Today, I'm super excited. We are joined with Kimberly Cook, and we're going to talk about how to navigate the divorce process without being stereotyped, stigmatized, and silenced. Kimberly Cook is a divorce attorney and mediator. She spent her career working with individuals and families navigating divorce. Divorce is more than just a legal process. The decisions made during the process are influenced by our culture, our community, and society. Society's divorce narrative is not written with us, women of color in mind, And the divorce process also finds black women stereotyped, stigmatized, and silenced. And you know what the truth is? Yes, black women get divorced. And yes, we deserve better when we do. It takes a village to get through divorce. And not everyone has a sister, or a friend like Kimberly to help them through the process. And today we are going to talk about how Kimberly suggests you navigate the process and how her platform, Grown Girl Divorce, can help educate and empower you to navigate divorce because sometimes you need a village, you need a sister, you need a friend. Hey, Kimberly, welcome to the Purpose of Money podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm good. Even better after listening to that intro, I got to say, I'm all psyched. Like, yes, let's do that. <laughs> let's do it. And girl, it's all about you, boo. I'm super excited. We are both members of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And yes, ma'am. now I know this is going to be a lit conversation because you are a soror. So before we hop into the nitty gritty of today's topic, I want to take a step back because I always like my listeners to know who they're talking to. And what was life for you like when you were growing up? So I want to know your money story. What was money like for you when you were a kid? Oh, wow. That's a good one. So let me just say, you know, I have parents who are old school, but we're trying to do some things, right? So we, um, you know, my dad worked for the Department of Defense and we moved overseas when I was like third or fourth grade. And I bring that up because we spent most of my upbringing outside of the U.S. And so when I think about kind of money and money story, I know that like we lived around um, third world poverty, which is different than what people see in the U.S., right? And so I always had an awareness that we were very blessed in many ways. Um, And so my parents, though, I think did a very good job of making sure that We talked about money. We talked about the importance of money and charitable giving. Um, And I think that has kind of framed me as a person. Now, separately, I also came from parents who were like, everybody gets a job from like sixth grade, right? So it was always, you know, you had to hustle. You had to figure out some sort of plan, some sort of job. So I've been working for a very long time. But where I think, and I hate to say this, my mom would be devastated to hear me say this, but I think where they kind of missed the boat, my parents were a little bit of the, you work very hard, you save it until you spend it. Meaning that, you know, our summer jobs, we worked, we worked, we worked, and then we would come to the States 
and we would like spend the money. And so I think growing up, they probably could have done a little bit better about exposing us to the kinds of things that they were doing, investment, saving for retirement, at least having those conversations. We didn't have those. And I didn't kind of really understand those and the value of that until much later. But I would say, you know, very kind of comfortable upbringing, had exposure to a lot of different things, but certainly charitable giving was a big part of kind of my life and exposure and living. Um, but then also, you know, I like to shop. I can shop anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> That's probably a little bit of a problem. Um, and, and I get that, I think, honestly. Oh, I love that. I'd love to know where did you live when you first moved overseas? Yeah, we lived in Panama. Um, and, you know, Panama is like trending topic these days. But when I when I moved, gosh, back in like 87, here I am dating myself, um, it was not trending topic. And when you told people you're moving to Panama, they thought Florida, right? They weren't thinking Panama. Now, at least now, when I say Panama, people are like, okay. Um, but yeah, no, we lived in Panama and I elementary, middle and high school. So yeah. Oh, wow. I love Adopted that. Panamanian. Yes, yeah, I love it. So I am half Panamanian. My dad is born and raised in Panama until he what? was six. And grandma moved everyone to New York. So okay. yes, big up to Panama. Love it, love it, love it. I've been several times and it is still it has a special place in my heart. For but sure. I'm also, uh, I come from 15 years in the government as a foreign service officer and I've lived abroad in Haiti, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, Ecuador, and done several tours in D.C. So I know okay. completely well your transition um, as a child overseas because I transitioned my family overseas. I actually had a son in Dubai during my tour there. Okay. So shout out to your family on exposing you to the world and yes. getting you to one of the best posts in the world. Um, For Panama sure. Still a top place to live <laughs> and work. <laughs> yeah, so look at that connection. Yeah, Love so it. We, we have so many things we're learning about each other today and I love it. It just means this was all in divine order because yes. we were introduced um, through a really good friend and now we are hitting it off and finding other connections. Um, a small tangent, but I was recently talking to someone who said the next time you're in a room, like a networking event or an opportunity where you're around a lot of strangers, try to find in a small group of people five things you don't have in common and you will see how hard it actually is to do because if you're doing it with a group of let's say one to five people or you know two to five people more than likely someone in that group will have that thing that they do know or love just like you so then you have to keep looking for something until you find one thing um five times that no one has in common and it helps you get to know people. So you and I are literally going through that process through this conversation. Yeah. But we have found two similarities, right? Yes. That has definitely sparked combo. So I love that. I love that. I that's love that. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that. Podcast. Yeah, so do it. So that's my networking tip. Next time you're in a room, play that game. Try to yep. find five things you don't have in common with a group of people. And then um, you'll learn so much more about each other and what you have in common. But let's get back to the subject at hand. So you are a divorce attorney and mediator and yep. sister sore friend who helps <laughs> <laughs> black women navigate the divorce process. 
I want you to share with us what inspired you to start Grown Girl Divorce and what is it so people can understand how that platform can help them. Yeah, great. So, you know, I think it was really, um, it happened organically. I got to be honest. So um, I've been a divorce attorney for the better part of 16 years. Oy. And, um, you know, represented men, women, all socioeconomic um, levels, all races, ethnicities. But time and time again, were my Black female clients who were really struggling, not necessarily with the process, but with the divorce experience, right? And so there's a difference between talking about the process. When we think about this idea of process, we're talking just generally about the legal process. And realistically, the legal process for everybody should be about the same from start to finish. The divorce experience, though, how you show up in the process, how you were treated in the process, how you navigate the process is very different. And what I kept seeing time and time again were that as Black women, we were not a part of the larger divorce narrative and conversation. And by that, I mean, you can Google resources, you can listen to podcasts, and every talking head, you know, a la expert, every download really wasn't talking to us and it wasn't giving voice to our experience. And so, you know, I finally said, you know what? Enough. I have girlfriends who can come to me and ask those questions that are real specific to us and our experiences. Why shouldn't every woman of color, every black woman have that? And so grown girl divorce came out of this desire um, and real need to support, educate, and empower us through this process. Um, so what is it? It's a divorce resource company that is designed to educate and empower Black women through the process. And we do that through various resources, through events, because um, it's really about us creating a space of relatability so that you feel seen and heard, appreciated, valued, and know that as a Black woman, we do get divorced. There are others out here who are getting divorced. You're not alone. Um, and your village is here. That's what it is. Um, in full disclosure, the fact that I do this work and not divorced, my parents were not divorced, um, but it's something that I honestly, um, I'm passionate about, I believe in, and I, and I really feel like it is something that God put me in this space to do because realistically, there is no reason that I'm in the divorce space other than it was, you know, destined to be that way. Um, but I love what I do and I love what I've been doing for a very long time. So I that's grown girl divorce. That. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I love that. And I love when People follow their purpose because they're even more successful. When when you're following the path God wants for you, He will open up all the doors. Okay, and you I gotta believe that. it. I, yes, I, yes. You know, I'll tell you, my law school though. Um, I was at the Catholic University of America for law school. I'm not the poster child for the Catholic University of America law school as the divorce attorney. However, however, you know, um, I truly and firmly believe that. Everyone deserves to be in a healthy and a happy relationship. And if you find yourself not in that, 
there is a way to transition out of that and divorce may be the process for you. So I, I, it's about everybody being in healthy spaces and that's the work that I want to do. I love how you phrase that healthy and happy relationships. What in your experience have you seen to be the most common reason people come to you seeking divorce? People are unhappy. And I know that's not the sexy answer or the expected answer that people think. Oftentimes people think it's infidelity um, or abuse, but it's really not. Those oftentimes are the symptoms. They're not the root. And so the real problem um, is that people are unhappy and they're not communicating with each other. And so there's been a breakdown. And so they go outside of the relationship or um, they are engaging with the person in the relationship in a toxic way because they are unhappy. So I would say most people who come to um, the divorce um, table Let's say that it's simply because they are unhappy and not a one time I'm unhappy. It's been years, right? This is not a, oh, we had a fight today, but it's we haven't been happy for years and enough is enough. That's why most people come. And then, of course, then followed by those other things, right? Um, certainly infidelity, abuse, um, lack of communication. But again, most of the time, those are symptoms of this underlying real cause. And that's really the unhappiness in the relationship. That's really interesting because depending on what you're reading, they'll always say, oh, it's financial issues. You know, finances yes. tends to be a breaking point. I know it can be an area of stress and it definitely doesn't necessarily help. But it's interesting that you say that because happiness matters. I think as women and black women, we are sometimes led to believe that our happiness doesn't matter or it should be at the sacrifice of our kids, our spouse, our job, or these other things that have to get done. But I actually believe that your happiness is just as important. I think God wants us to be happy. And I think that we function better as people when we're happy. So it's no surprise that when you're not, you will display that behavior, like you said, uh, taking it out on your partner or maybe um, not communicating well for years. And then finally, somebody says enough is enough. Right. Absolutely. So that's key. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny. I always tell people being unhappy is enough. Right. It's enough. Right. So you saying, you know, happiness matters. Absolutely. And and look, I, I'm not pro-divorce, right? I, I really, I want people to be, here it is, happily married, right? Like I, I'm all for that. And so when you are unhappy for whatever the reason is, it's enough to be like, I deserve to be happy. And if that means that I'm going in a different direction in my relationship, then that's all you and that's great. And, you know, in reference to um, money and financial concerns being an issue, certainly that oftentimes stems from a breakdown in the communication. But again, it's going back to somebody is unhappy about something that's being played out. Maybe it's the expectations that we brought to the marriage, the lack of discussions that we talked about. And so now it's manifesting itself 
via our financial situation or financial distrust. So it all kind of stems from, you know, this basic question, but seminal question, are you happy? Period. Right. And if you aren't, then what do we need to do to get you there? And divorce might be a part of that. That is so good. So are you happy? So I definitely, I'm curious to know in your experience, you may not necessarily know the statistics for the industry. When you come to the table and you are a mediator, what is the chances or how likely is it that someone will come to the table, actually make a concerted effort and end up staying married? So I would say if people are coming to mediation with the intention of what we call kind of discernment, right? So figuring out, is our relationship worth kind of saving? Um, And we're having discussions about what our plan is to save the marriage, right? Then you're going to look at about 80% of those can be saved. Okay. But here's the key. People have to come to the mediation table in good faith and with the intention of reaching the same goal because mediation is all about problem solving. And so if our goal is to save our marriage, then we frame things from the perspective of saying, okay, it's not you and I against each other. It's you and I together against the problems. And so then we problem solve with that in mind. But what often happens, you have one person who's coming to the table, not necessarily interested in actually reaching the goal of staying married. And so that's a reality for, I would say, that remaining 20% where it's, I'm going to do this because, you know, I'm being dragged to try to do this, but that's not really my interest. And so Therein lies the breakdown. On the flip side, though, for participants in mediation who are coming to the process with the goal of divorce, but doing it in a way that is amicable and gives them a greater sense of control than, say, the traditional court process, same kind of thing if we're all coming to the table in good faith looking to problem solve, then therein lies your higher percentage. So about 90% of those cases then can be resolved in mediation and reach full and final resolution. So I'm a big, big supporter of mediation, whether it's we're trying to figure out a plan because our goal is to remain married, or it's we have decided that marriage is really not where we need to move forward, but we need to put a plan in place for how we are going in our separate spaces. So that's going to be the difference. You actually raised a good point about coming together amicably. Like every time you see celebrities are getting divorced, they always say so-and-so and so-and-so amicably divorced. And you're always just like, what does that mean? Like you sit there and say, Bye, John. It was nice knowing you, but I'm out, you know. Um, but <laughs> I always am like, why do we always say that? But it leads me to my question, my next question about that planning and how you can plan ahead in some cases. But I don't want this question 
to be interpreted to mean you're planning for a divorce. But I wanted to know as a, as an attorney, what do you think are some of the things women can do before getting married that makes the divorce process run more smoothly if it happens? Yeah. Great question. Let me say one quick thing before I answer that. Celebrity divorces, right, are in many ways the model by which everybody should follow. Okay. Now, there are the outliers, okay, the ones that you see splashed across the news and and, and the like. But here's the reality of those celebrity, quote, amicable divorces. There's a team of people working behind the scenes operating the divorce as a business deal. And that's in fact what it is, right? Your marital unit, think of it as a business partnership. And now we have to unwind it. And how we do it is not by burning down the building, right? We And so the average person loses sight of that. But celebrities and high profile individuals know there's so much more to lose when you do it that way than sitting down and hashing out details. So it's not a kumbaya, but it's very intentional. So just wanted to kind of throw that in there because as someone who represents high profile and entertainers and athletes, I can tell you it's very intentional process and and one by which everybody should be doing. So with that, then to answer your question on what can women do pre-marriage to really help them if they end up getting divorced. First and foremost, you want to be prepared, right? You have to know who you're marrying. And and I say that knowing that um, people get very caught up in, in love. And that's wonderful. We want everybody to be in love. But marriage is a legal contract. And so putting the love aside for the moment You have to know who you're marrying. And the best way to do that is to really have really good conversations about what my expectations are, finances, what the expectations are with it relates to children, where we see ourselves as a couple. Having these conversations, one, whether it's premarital counseling, whether it's with a spiritual advisor or with a coach, those things are key to laying a solid foundation. And then there's the prenuptial agreement. And I know everybody gets real uncomfortable when that word comes up, but let me say this. The benefit of a prenup is that everybody is coming to the table bare, meaning you have to lay bare, you have to disclose, you have to strip down naked and show everything that you got, right? as a part of the prenup process. And people lose sight of that. So you are now marrying somebody, you don't know what their finances are. You don't really know what their income is with their employment. You don't know their employment history. In the prenup process, you do because you have to. That's a requirement. Full and complete disclosures are required. And so I say to women all the time, before you dismiss the idea of a prenup because people think of it as divorce planning, think of it from the framework of insurance, meaning we don't have insurance because we think we're going to get into a car accident or we think that, you know, something's going to help 
happen to us health-wise. We have insurance for auto and health to protect us in the event that something does. A prenuptial agreement does the same thing. It's we are laying bare, we are figuring out a plan while we are all amicable and in love and setting up certain protections so that if things change, we have a plan in place that sets and lays everything else to protect us. So you've got to communicate, you've got to protect yourself before you then say, I do, because the legal ramifications are too great not to take and do some of this preparation work before you get married. So I, that I, I'm, I'm really, really, really hard on women when it comes to we are too advanced, we are too smart, we are too successful to go into marriage blind. You really have to um, do the homework in preparing for a marriage in the event of, of a divorce. That is so good. And so let me just recap that for you because there's a couple of things that I want people to understand and walk away from this conversation very clear about. So I am in the life insurance industry. I sell life insurance specifically and disability insurance. Now, life insurance is an exception because we are all going to die and we want you to get life insurance to prepare for your fi- funding your family's finances when you're gone or when you die too soon. But disability operates in a similar way in that you're getting disability insurance in the event you're sick or injured and unable to do your job, which interrupts your income. And you get disability insurance because you want to know if something happens, you'll be protected. So the prenup is very, very similar in that it is protecting you, you and your finances if you do end up getting a divorce. But my question to you is, Is that at certain stages? Because now millennials are waiting longer to get married. So they may have their house already. They may have their retirement savings and maybe even a business that they're working and nurturing when they decide to get married versus when I got married at 25, I just started my government job. I had no kids and I only had my retirement savings from when I was started at a teenager, but nothing really more than that. But do you think, that it matters if you're at 25 with not much or 35 and have half a million in net worth? Or do you think um, you only need it at that 35? Like what, what is the criteria, I guess, if you're coming to the table? I love that because my response is always, even broke girls need a prenup. What? Okay. And, and, and here's the thing, right? Because listen, It's a forward thinking plan. We don't know what the future holds. Okay. And there is a misconception that prenuptial agreements are only designed for wealthy individuals. Yes, that certainly is where it came from, right? This idea that I want to protect what I'm bringing to the table. And in large part, laws have adjusted for that, meaning If you have a large inheritance, it doesn't matter what state you're in. There are generally laws that talk about your inheritance that you, you know, got from your family. That's usually going to stay with you. But when we think about things like that retirement account you were referencing, even if it's 
well, I only have a couple thousand dollars. It was my first job out. I, it's yours. And it's one of the things that you don't want to five, 10, 15 years from now having to even question about whether or not you get to keep that because there's some emotional attachment to it was my first job, right? Why am I fighting with you over whether this is mine or not? But here's what happens in a marriage. Things get commingled. We lose paperwork. Things happen. And so if you have a prenup and you are able to line out and say, when we were married, here are all of the things that I had when we were broke and just starting out or whatever it is, right? At a minimum, I want to leave the marriage with these things, right? So that's the first step. It protects those things that you had from start. And again, maybe that's your first car. And I know a lot of people are like, but I have nothing. Okay, no problem. You can design a prenuptial agreement based on what makes sense for you. So it's not an all or nothing. It doesn't mean that nobody gets spousal support or it doesn't mean that um, you don't get access to certain retirement benefits. But you can design things like if we decide that I'm going to be the stay-at-home parent at some point in the future, then I shall be entitled to spousal support or here is, you know, what we want to do in terms of how our retirements are treated during the marriage. If it's held in my name, it's mine. If it's joint, it's ours. You can design just about anything except for child-related child support. Those are against public policy laws. And then in most states now, you can't do things like what we call kind of the punitive clauses, meaning... You know, um, if you gain 15 pounds, um, then, you know, you don't get support or, you know, people try to do some wild things. But, you know, those are and and let me tell you, here's here. Here is another reason why you want to do that prenup, because if you got a spouse who wants that kind of language in a prenup, you don't need to marry this person. Real talk, lining out and understanding where people's heads are at really comes out in the negotiation of a prenup. It should be a collaborative effort. When it starts getting real nasty and it starts getting punitive, those are red flags that maybe this is not the relationship for you. So keep those things in mind. But yeah, I would really say that even if you don't think you, quote, have anything, it's worth sitting down and talking to a divorce attorney to understand your options in terms of what makes the most sense. I've had lawyers who have um, kind of said to clients, oh, it's not worth um, doing it. And then five years later, when they're getting divorced, they regret not doing it or at least having the conversation. So have the conversation. Have the conversation. And always remember, broke girls need prenups too. That is definitely a quote (laughs) for the books. (laughs) (laughs) So I want you to give my listeners who they're like, look, I'm married. I've been married or I just got married and I did not have the conversation. What are my options? Are you allowed to get something after marriage? Yes. So there is something called a post nup, right? So it's a post nuptial agreement. 
And it's structured in many ways um, like a prenup, meaning we've got to disclose kind of the circumstances as things are right now. But then it's designed to kind of lay out, okay, in the event we were to get divorced, here is what we want to do. Now, I will tell you, when you're thinking about doing a postnuptial agreement, it's going to be really important that you know the laws in your state because some states are very particular about the timing of the entry of a postnuptial agreement. And you want to make sure that it is done in a way that is not intended to be divorce planning. Let me say that again. The intention is not divorce planning. The intention is a, here's been a change in our circumstances and we want to clarify things or we've decided that we want to carve out certain things. However, neither one of us is filing for divorce within the next three months or six months. And in some states, it might be even a year. So be very, very certain um, before you sign a postnuptial agreement or um, try to have a postnup drafted that you know the laws where you are because there are some specific nuances that you've got to keep in mind. I love that. That's really good advice. So um, do you remember, have, did you see that uh, movie, Tyler Perry, Why Did I Get Married To? I did. Okay. So do you remember the scene where they're both on each side of the table and um, Janet Jackson is like, why do you want proceeds from my book? I wrote the book. I wrote the pages. You didn't stay up all night and edit and copy and this. And her husband was like, well, I supported you when I did this. Yep. That that was a crazy emotional scene, but it, 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 it to me is an example of how you might discover your passion in your marriage, right? And put your heart and soul into it, create it, it's super successful. And now unfortunately you're getting a divorce. How do you best navigate situations like that? What is your advice to women? That's great. You have to be very careful because what is acquired, obtained, um, you know, founded, during a marriage is presumably marital, okay? And so when we think about things like a book or a business or these side hustles, you have to be very, very careful knowing that in and of itself, it is a marital um, marital property or there's a component of it. So when you are Uh, going to start a business, or if you are thinking about, I'm going to write a book, I always recommend that either you speak with a divorce attorney or a trademark lawyer, um, and in some cases, a trust and estate lawyer. The reason for the difference in all three is because you want to set up, whether it's the business or the book or um, whatever the idea may be, you want to make sure that it's structured or titled in a way that's almost outside of the marital estate. So let me give you an example. When people have a land trust, 
they don't personally own the property, right? The land trust owns it. The same with other funds or assets that are put into a trust. You don't own it. The trust owns it. And so in the divorce process, there are ways to kind of capture certain assets or certain items so that they technically are outside of the marital estate, depending on what it is. Now, that's not always the case, okay? But it's very important to speak with, meet with someone when you're thinking about starting a business or a new venture in in terms of how do I kind of protect this. The other thing to be honest about is you might not be able to, okay? And you started a business during the marriage. You put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. But don't discount the fact that your spouse may have in some ways been helpful. Now, I get it. Maybe that looks like you were working all night and trying to get this thing going. They were feeding the kids or picking up the kids from school or they were keeping the mortgage paid so that you could follow your passion and your dream. If the shoe were on the other foot, would you want to at least realize some involvement or value at the end of the day? And so be very clear on the reason that you're pushing so hard against or trying to discount someone's involvement in in your business venture or process because oftentimes they did support in some way that we often overlook and so it may not be 50% of the business value but maybe it is worth saying 5% 10% so that you can then move forward yes that is such a good point because um i i tell people this all the time like my ability to be an entrepreneur has a lot to do with my village which includes my husband and the days that i'm recording back-to-back podcast episodes or i'm in back-to-back meetings he is handling the kids the food dinner you know facilitating our life and we need to not discount that effort and that support And in some cases, your spouse may be your listening ear for new ideas, maybe the person who helps spark a new idea. So it definitely is worth acknowledgement. And sometimes people just want that recognition. But then you also need to figure out how does that impact the business when you are separating. So that's a really, really good perspective. Uh, I do have a question since you you hinted that you have worked with celebrities and athletes. And they have the blueprint on how this needs to be done. Um, But is it always true that when you have the best or most expensive attorney, you get the best side of the deal? (laughs) No, it's not. And and I can tell you um, from personal experience and my personal experience, um, I spent my career at the largest divorce firm in the country. Um, And it's an excellent firm. It's an expensive firm. And every lawyer there, I would argue, is a good lawyer. That said, there are many very good lawyers who are solo practitioners or who are at smaller firms and don't have the same kind of cost because they don't have the same overhead, 
right? So don't discount someone just based on, well, you know, they're not at a big firm or they're not $700 an hour. Because here's the thing, divorce is expensive and it gets very expensive very quickly. And so don't make the mistake of jumping to the most expensive person thinking that's going to get me the best deal because it it may not, okay? There are good lawyers who can be found at every price point. There are horrible lawyers who can be found at every price point. The reason celebrities or high-profile clients often find themselves at these larger firms has a lot to do with bandwidth for the firm. A solo practitioner does not necessarily have the bandwidth or the capacity to manage not just the actual kind of file, but also what comes with that, meaning having to navigate the media, knowing that you will be interacting with probably 10 different people at any given time on this individual's team. And that can be very difficult and overwhelming for a one-on-one person to do. So oftentimes you will see that our celebrities are at kind of larger firms or have very expensive teams. And it's because they are handling a lot of pieces that the average person just doesn't have and so don't need those kind of needs. But doing your homework and finding the right lawyer for you is really key in making your divorce process um, not just amicable, but so that you're not financially ruined. But don't run to the most expensive person because, you know, that doesn't work in, in most cases to someone's benefit. I, I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that be, besides the attorney fees and, and the time and, and maybe even the effort and it takes to get a divorce, I know it can be expensive from a financial perspective as well. If you are someone who's in a state where the rule might be, oh, you've been married for 10 years or more, this person's entitled to some of your retirement benefits. So now you find yourself giving them half of your retirement or equivalent thereof um, and starting over at probably um, an older age than you ever expected. I noticed I was reading something recently where it said a lot of people are getting divorced in their 50s now and having to navigate divorce and a new relationship, if that's what they desire, has been um, one of the reasons people work longer because they were closer to retirement, right? And now- all of a sudden they're starting over um, possibly with without the home they thought they would share with their spouse or without the same amount of retirement savings they had before the divorce. And so that's something to also consider. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, there's certainly a rise on and, um, you know, it's commonly referred to as, quote, the gray divorce. Um, and and that's in reference to right. Um, an older age of divorce. But Regardless of the age, there will be a financial transition as a part of a divorce. And so whether that's splitting up retirement accounts or whether that's, you know, we're selling our home, there is a transition and you have to take that into account 
when you're going through the process. You also have to take into account that just because your girlfriend's divorce was finished in six months doesn't mean that yours will. And so you've got to be prepared that this thing can go on longer than you anticipated and it can become a cash flow issue because the mortgage still has to be paid, tuition for the kids have to be paid, gas in the car, all of these things. But now on top of that, you have legal fees for you, legal fees for your spouse, you know, maybe even other expert fees. And I can tell you that at the end of the month, these people are looking to get paid. Nobody's working for free and they want their money regardless of how you come by it. And so I've had many, many people who found themselves where they are having to take out a home equity line during the middle of a divorce, which keep in mind that it's going to have to be split between y'all at some point, right? Because they were trying to keep up with legal fees. So be very clear about what you can afford when you think about hiring a lawyer because the process is not guaranteed to be quick, fast, and in a hurry. Absolutely. Facts. Man, I learned so much from this conversation because what I know about divorce is what I learned on TV and what I see in my family, right? But I've never actually experienced it. I'm blessed to also be in a happy, loving marriage. And I continue to want to be that example for my sons. But I realized that for some of my family members, divorce was the best option for them. I've also seen the opposite where people stay married and, you know, good and well, they shouldn't. But that's the choice they made. And who (laughs) am I to judge? Right. Right. Um, So I want to thank you so much, Kimberly, for this conversation and then your insight into the space of, you know, process of getting a divorce and how your platform can be a resource to help us. If you can, I want you to answer one of my signature questions. So the name of the podcast is called The Purpose of Money. And I ask all my guests this question. What is your purpose for money? Ooh, my purpose for money, I think, is to... Give my children the leg up in their own lives as they figure out who they are. Um, And so for me, it's about using it as a tool right now um, to set things in motion so that when it's time for them to start their lives, right, Um, they have the ability to do so without, say, debt, without um, any kind of need for um, reliance or outside support in another way. But it's because we, and by we, my husband and I, have been able to set them on a path and set them up in a way um, that they have a leg up for themselves. So I think I use it as a tool to, to set up my children for the future. I love it. And I love setting kids up for success. We need all the advantages we can get. And I want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. You are helping black women through the divorce process and providing a platform where we can find the resources we need, especially in a environment where we are stigmatized. We are 
um, stereotypes and sometimes silence. So keep doing what you're doing. Uh, before you leave, though, please tell my listeners, where can they find you? How can they connect? Yes, yes, yes. And thank you for having me on The Purpose of Money. Um, you can go to the website, which is GrownGirlDivorce.com. You can find us on um, social media platforms, so Instagram, Facebook, also at GrownGirlDivorce.com, LinkedIn, Grown Girl Divorce. That's where you can find us. And then we have a podcast um, where we feature Black women and women of color, um, both experts and personal stories of women who've been through the process. And the podcast is Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. Go figure. It's a great, great, (laughs) great way to find it. Guys, I will make sure to include all the links in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. If you love this episode or you know anyone who could benefit from listening to it, please, please, please share, share, share. Sharing is caring. And while you're there, please leave a five-star review because reviews help the podcast be seen by others who might be looking for this great content. And it is a great and free way to show your appreciation for the show. Until next time, guys, keep building generational wealth. Thank you for listening to the Purpose of Money podcast. For more resources and information, check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our newsletter so you have the latest information on new episodes and blog posts. Until next time, keep creating freedom in your life today.